0: You're listening to Reach MD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine.
1: Obesity is a common cause of sleep apnea, and yet 57% of women who are not obese are affected by sleep disturbances in their lifetime. Is it commonly thought that the sleep apnea could really only be a problem for obese men, or can obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, affect women as well? Joining me today is Joyce Wesselbin, the former director of sleep disorders at the Center of NYU Schools of Medicine, an expert in sleep disturbances, and co author of the book A Women's Guide to Sleep. Dr. Wesselbin, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. So let's start with the basics. Can you define sleep apnea for us?
0: Sleep apnea is actually the cessation of airflow through the airway, and it occurs in general during sleep. It is actually a factor where the airway closes and, in fact, people have to suck air in more strongly so they suck the walls of the airway closed with them. It's not the case that they stop breathing. So during the time the airway is closed, the chest is pumping to break that closure. And then it ends usually in a snort or a snore when the airway
1: opens again. Do you think it, and that forces the patient to awaken to try to compensate at that time?
0: Yes. The brain understands the problem and the brain wakes them up, however, briefly. But during the time that the airway is clogged, and it could be 10 seconds to 30 seconds and sometimes a lot longer, there certainly is added pressure in the chest. That then compounds things like blood pressure, like urine flow. And, It also takes its stress on the heart as well in general.
1: Do you think there's a noticeable difference in the prevalence of sleep apnea in men versus women?
0: Yes, there certainly seems to be. It's not as much as we we thought in the past, the difference at least. So perhaps twice as many men will have sleep apnea than women. But women are an interesting factor, an interesting group, because few of us are ever told we snore. And in fact, Sometimes we don't actually snore and we still have a a breathing issue going on at night. It would appear that women breathe differently, particularly in their dream sleep, so that it's almost a hypoventilation that occurs and we can see significant oxygen desaturations over a period of time during that dream cycle across the night so that it's, it's a type of apnea, but it's somewhat different from what you might see in a man.
1: How would you go about diagnosing a patient who you believe has this problem?
0: Unfortunately, most of them need sleep studies of one form or another. And one of the issues that we looked is who the customer is, in a sense. You mentioned obesity, but it can also be reflected in dental changes in people who have receding jaws, for instance. Someone with an airway that's filled with extra tissue or tonsils, so that there's an anatomical component as well. And it's usually the patient who's tired in the daytime, maybe can tell you that they're snoring, but certainly knows they're waking up at times during the night. Nowhere do they realize they're waking up as frequently as they are, but They know that their sleep might be fragmented as well, and they're finding themselves waking up with headaches and feeling like they've been run over across the night.
1: And so in discussing in a general exam for a patient, if you wanted to elicit a history significant sleep apnea, what do you think are the targeted questions we could consider asking?
0: Well, it's always the target is always snoring, but don't worry about it in a woman so much. And fatigue the following day, sleepiness, that they're not able to maintain wakefulness as much as they could in the past. Those are the two cardinal ones. You might find gasping at night. Someone may have told them that. They may, you may find that they're waking up with a headache, that they are thrashing around at night. Those are all culprits that would put you on the path of sleep apnea.
1: Now, you were talking about sleep studies as a way to diagnose apnea if there was a suspicion of this. That's a fairly expensive test. If someone didn't have insurance, would there be any alternative tests available?
0: Well, there are some take-home tests that are now being approved, actually, by societies for diagnostic workups. But for the most part, I would suspect that people can get a sleep study. Even a Medicaid will pay for it. It's just as difficult sometimes finding centers who accept it. But I think it's probably the most appropriate because there are many other things that can factor in. You could have someone with periodic leg movements, and, and they may tend to look like they have sleep apnea as well. So it's, a, it's an important diagnosis, and you'd really want to get it right.
1: You know, it's interesting to me that the sleep study is done in a controlled atmosphere with all that stuff stuck on your head. And, you know, I wonder, is it a realistic evaluation of someone's sleep pattern in that setting? Well, we're not
0: so concerned with their sleep pattern. We're concerned with what they do in different stages of sleep. So as I tell my patients, we're not looking for a perfect night of sleep, but we certainly want to see non-dream sleep and dream sleep, so REM and non-REM. And if we can get those in different positions, all the better. And all we need is snippets of that across the night. So I I would tell you I've been in this for almost 30 years, and I don't think on two hands that I could count the number of patients who haven't slept enough for us to make some sense out of that So
1: sensitivity of the test is quite high, it sounds like. Yes. So if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and Dr. Joyce Wesselman and I are discussing sleep apnea in women. It's said that 90% of patients suffer from OSA or obstructive sleep apnea, and they're undiagnosed. Why do you think that's so?
0: I think part of it is that people don't recognize snoring as abnormal. About half of us snore on every survey, so it's hard to say, actually, that it's abnormal, but it certainly is a major cue, and we expect it. It's one of the things that people think is okay. So we miss one cardinal symptom. The other part is that... Unfortunately, sleep and sleep disorders is never taught in a medical setting, in a medical school. So people have to gain their knowledge, as we're doing today, by some sort of a CME or something. And, and we're trying very hard to educate the world. And there are certainly people that you know, know that, but don't feel it's as prevalent as it is. So they don't think about it when they're, when they're confronted with a patient. So part of it is recognition of the symptoms.
1: Why do you think a lack of sleep is detrimental to one's overall health?
0: There's lots of data to show performance deficits. Even being awake 17 hours can make you perform as though you're almost legally drunk. So, that's our first clue. But we now know that it's linked to different changes in our hormones such as ghrelin and leptin so that we're more prone to eat and gain weight, develop diabetes. We can certainly link it to onsets of depression when we have an insomnia blooming. So there's lots of areas that have been shown to be affected by lack of sleep.
1: So do you think that the, the lack of sleep is contributing to the obesity that so many of these patients suffer from?
0: I think so. I think it's one of those circles. We don't know where it started. But my sense is that I think it starts very early. I think it begins in that second or third decade when everyone's out trying to burn the candle at both ends to make their life comfortable. And they don't sleep a lot, and they start to eat a little bit more. One of the things we do when we're tired is usually seek carbohydrates. So the little weight gain happens, and then we develop into snores, and then we develop into sleep apnea. And before you know it, we've got high blood pressure and diabetes, and we're 45.
1: It's a spiral.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, and it's not going up.
1: Well, you know, hopefully we'll we'll give some people some ideas about making that better, because that sounds really bad. It does. What are some of the treatment options do you think we can offer patients who suffer from OSA?
0: Well, one of the safest, most effective is a device called CPAP. It's continuous positive airway pressure. All that it is is a little air pump that pumps up room air, delivers it to the nostrils. It goes down in the airway, holds all that tissue back, and so it keeps the airway open. A person can breathe, and because they're breathing, they sleep well. Lovely device, works well. Paid by insurance companies, plug it in, put it on, it's yours. Not everyone is willing to accept it or can get comfortable with it. So second waves are to think in terms of dental appliances. And that's been well shown from mild to moderate sleep apnea that it can do a very nice job just pulling the lower jaw somewhat forward, making some more room in the airway. And that seems to help perhaps with muscle tone as well. Then there are some surgeries that can be very useful, such as a tonsillectomy or a sort of a plastic surgery cutting out some of the tissues in the airway, those are not proven to be quite as effective. They have perhaps a 30 to 40% success rate and are best when they're in the most appropriate patients who tend to be thinner, who have real targets. But one of the things that happens is, much like a leaky hose, if you put your finger on one of the holes, another one opens up further down, and that's part of what goes on with the surgery If you were to take out polyps, you might find that there's something further down in the airway that is the next uh, area that might need treatment. So if you've had dental appliances, if you've had surgery, and you're very happy with the cure, you still need that sleep study because the surgery removes the major symptom of snoring. And the dental appliance could do the same. So you want someone to make sure that the apnea is corrected well.
1: You know, interestingly, I recently had a patient who suffered from sleep apnea. And after general anesthesia, the anesthetic staff was extremely vigilant in observing that patient for the first 24 to 48 hours under a monitored situation as opposed to the routine post-operative area. And I think that it was a wonderful pickup on their part. And I think as physicians, we have to be very aware when patients are undergoing surgery that have this problem, that we have to alert the anesthesia staff and the patient that they may need a more intensive evaluation after because there usually isn't CPAP in the hospital.
0: That's correct. And absolutely, for any of these airway surgeries, that's a mandatory, particularly if you suspect apnea in a child having a tonsillectomy or adenoidectomy. That's another group that has to be kept in and, and vigilantly monitored.
1: Do you think that sleep, sleep apnea is sometimes misconstrued as insomnia and in patients are given sleep in AIDS?
0: Yes, I do. And I think it's, it's also an interesting area in the line of psychiatry in that the psychoactive drugs tend to increase body weight, and those patients tend to develop sleep apnea and frequently are very much missed and will sometimes get into significant trouble. So we always warn the physicians that we deal with as well as the patient that they're at risk with any kind of a sedative, or sedative drugs such as even an antihistamine that may be combined with their apnea and cause them some trouble.
1: Do you think that there's any impact on some of the herbal alternatives that are recommended for sleep for these patients, for example, melatonin?
0: Well, I never recommend the herbal products and primarily because we don't know what we're getting in this country. Some of them are very well studied in, in Europe and well regulated, but here it's sort of a catch Uh, You never know what you're getting, so I would much prefer people get a standard sleep medication. We know where it's working. We know what the problems with it may be, and they get a prescription and use it appropriately. It's a much, much safer way to go.
1: I think the enthusiasm for herbal products has been something that's been the bane of most general physicians' existences for the last 5 or 10 years. But that lack of regulation concerns all of us. Yes, Do you think there are new therapies on the horizon as opposed to CPAP or variations in CPAP other than the more invasive treatments of surgery for the obstructive sleep apnea?
0: Well, we keep looking for the magic pill and not finding it. So there's a lot of work looking in that area. But other things that are happening are certainly that we're making advances in in getting CPAP device is a lot more comfortable for patients. So that's been making a big difference.
1: A special thanks to our guest, Dr. Joyce Wesselbin, who's been discussing sleep apnea and the challenges of a diagnosis and treatment for women. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For questions, comments, complete program information, and on-demand podcast, visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.